0: I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 32, Genesis chapter 32, and we hope to consider if the Lord will bless us with his spirit and with wisdom and the right words to say, to consider this morning, wrestling with God, wrestling with God from Genesis chapter 32. So I want to get us up to speed on where we are at in the life of of Jacob, Jacob, who is the principal uh, example of a child of God, because he is one of the few people in Scripture that it is said distinctly, Jacob have I loved, right? Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. So we see that Jacob is loved by God, and just like us, you know, <laughs> Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, and what a better example of an Old Testament chief of sinners to a large degree then Jacob, whose name means supplanter, who literally means heel catcher, and that's what he did coming out of the womb. And he uh, stole Esau's blessings, stole his birthright, and he deceived his dad with the consulting and help of his mother to steal the blessing of his blind father, Isaac. And because of that, Esau is so enraged, and I think it's also good to keep in mind as you look at the story of Jacob and Esau, uh, that Esau is not elect. Distinctly, we're told that, have I hated? He's a sinner. God saw fit to not choose him before the world began and leave him in his unregenerate state. And I think there's a lot of good lessons to learn when you are able to, to see Esau through that lens and how the Lord is sovereign even in those that are not necessarily born again. So he leaves having stolen Esau's blessing. And Esau promised to kill him, okay? And then he leaves and goes to the uh, family members of Laban, who is his uncle. And in the middle of that trip, before he leaves... um, and before he arrives, rather, at his uh, family's homeland, we have this account where he sees a ladder and he sees angels going up and down upon that ladder. And he describes that as being Bethel, the house of God. And I think you can make a pretty strong case as you look at the life of Jacob that that is most likely when he was born again because it describes Jacob that God found him in a waste howling wilderness and he's out there in the middle of the wilderness sleeping on a rock when that occurs and you don't see really any positive fruit prior to that point and you do see some positive fruit of the spirit after that point so I think you can make a pretty strong case that that is when Jacob was born again, which even the mistakes that we make, even the mistakes that uh, I think Paul's a great example of this. Paul did many things in his life prior to being born again that Satan brought back to his mind that he had to deal with the relationship struggles of uh, having persecuted and maybe even slain the family members of those that he is trying to now minister to. God's not mocked what we reap, what we sow that shall we also reap. And even the uh, things that we sow, even in unregenerate state, those, uh, those will eventually come back around to us possibly. Okay. Uh, Now we're thankful that God is gracious to not always make us fully Reap everything that we've sown. It says in um, Hosea, maybe, that you've you've sown the wind, and you're going to reap the whirlwind. Well, I'm glad God doesn't always. If we approach things in the right way, He doesn't always dial it up where you know if we we sow the wind, we have to reap something worse, right? We, we reap the whirlwind. Sometimes God is gracious to to forgive us despite uh, the mistakes that we make, but. It's interesting how Jacob has been a deceiver pretty much his whole life, okay? He's uh, lied to uh, advance his own agenda, to advance himself, and then now he has a change of heart, a a change of action, but yet at the same time he shows up at Laban, at Laban's house, and what does Laban do? He acts just like Jacob used to act, right? He deceives him and he tricks him, and he ends up marrying uh, Leah instead of Rachel, and then he ends up serving him uh, for for 20 years. He said, you changed my wages 10 times. So uh, someone was kind of beating Jacob at his own game or his old game uh, because he was very deceitful uh, and prideful and and, and selfish to advance his own aim. And then he found someone who was maybe even a little bit better at it than him, which, which was Laban. So that is him reaping what he sowed, right? So now, God has actually blessed Jacob tremendously uh, as he served Laban. And then you have this dividing of the flocks. And and then uh, Jacob has this scheme to advance uh, his his own flocks and taking some of the, the lesser speckled cattle and all this. So anyway, he leaves the land of Laban. Uh, even though Laban was deceitful and changed his wages ten times, the Lord uh, honors Jacob by... Uh, the way that he conducted himself in that uh, in that time of his life, and he leaves a very rich man. Okay, he, he leaves with tremendous amounts of flocks and servants, and he is leaving a rich man. And the Lord tells him to go back home, go back to his homeland. And <clears throat> he has now left Laban, and he is about to enter the homeland. And he sends messengers to Esau to let his brother know that he's coming. Now, remember, 20 years have passed. A lot changes in 20 years, right? 20 years older, uh, hopefully 20 years wiser. He's probably uh, learned a little bit of of more humility than he had 20 years ago. Um, But even Esau in his unregenerate state um, was um, being... Um, was learning more about um, just life in general, okay? So, the last time that they had saw one another, okay, the last time that they had saw one another, Esau promised to kill Jacob. So that's the last conversation that they had. And based on Jacob's understanding, nothing had changed of that, because he knew knew the kind of man that Esau was. He probably knew that he held held grudges for a really long time, right? So he had the promise of a death sentence when he showed back up, and then he sends messengers to Esau, sends messengers to Esau, and trying to give him gifts to appease his hatred of him and the death threat that was still pending. And then Jacob finds out that Esau is coming with 400 men. Okay, Esau's coming with 400 men. Now, that doesn't seem like a a welcoming committee, right? That sounds a lot like an army to kill you. Okay, so, so he finds out that Esau is coming to greet him with 400 men. And appropriately so, in Genesis chapter 32 and in verse 7, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people that was with him, the flocks, the herds, the camels, into two bands. So he's afraid that the next day that Esau and this 400-man army is going to kill him and all of his family. And I I love this uh, beautiful prayer here of Jacob, beginning in Genesis chapter 32 and verse 9. O God of my father Abraham and God of, of my father Isaac, the Lord, which saidest unto me, return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. Lord, you told me to go home. You know, and I think this is a great reasoning of faith. Uh, we see this a couple generations before this and with Abraham, that Abraham was told by the Lord to sacrifice Isaac, and he reasoned by faith that if God tells me to sacrifice my son, well, he's promised me that I'm gonna have a great posterity That my seed is going to be as vast as the stars of heaven and the sand of the seashore. And that can't happen if Isaac hasn't had a child yet, right? So he reasons by faith that if God tells me to sacrifice Isaac here on Mount Moriah, then obviously he's just going to resurrect him from the dead because God's promise and his word is at stake, okay? And I think uh, Jacob is kind of trying to reason the same thing. Like, you've promised me, he says a little bit later in verse 12, thou saidst, I'll surely do you good and make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. You told me that my posterity, you now he has a whole bunch of kids and a whole bunch of wives at this point, but for, for the they, they could be numbered. I mean, he knew the exact number of people that were coming with him. And he said, you told me, ...that my seed is going to be so vast that they can't be numbered. Well, if for that to happen, then he can't wipe out every single member of my family, right? So, similar to Abraham, he should reason by faith that Esau's not going to kill me and my entire family. Why? Because God has made a promise. God's made a promise that his posterity would be innumerable and vast, okay? Okay? So he said, Lord, you're the one who told me to come back. Lord, you're the one who told me to come home. And I love this statement in Genesis chapter 32 and verse 10. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. And I hope that the grace of God has tendered your heart for you to be able to make that same statement, right? I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies that God has given me. And I'm sure I'm thankful for providential blessings, but don't ever... Uh, lose sight of being thankful because you're not worthy of this either. Of God revealing to you the truth of His gospel and the truth of His word. Because so many children of God walk around in burdens, and they they're doubting their salvation left and right, and they they have an I- idea of a conditional love God that He's gonna uh, He may love me today, but if I do something wrong, He may hate me and send me to hell tomorrow. And praise God that that's not the God of the Bible. That I know that despite all of my shortcomings, I know I'm not worthy of anything, but that's the whole purpose of grace, right? Grace is unmerited favor. I don't deserve anything. But God has given me all of these blessings that I don't deserve, but he also saw fit, not just to save me by grace, but in his providence to allow me to understand the truth of what he's done for me. Because many children of God won't understand that until they get to heaven, I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies, of all the truth. Thank you, Lord, for blessing me in your providence to know and understand the gospel that gives me so much peace here in time. I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth. The the word of God is truth. So many children of God haven't had the opportunity to study and dig into God's word in the manner that we have. I mean, I I hope that you, you know that you're not worthy of even having this canon of scripture that we have having access to the word of god in a way that god's children in times past never had and and we have so much access to it and i'm so thankful for the for the ease and simplicity i mean i i feel like as a primitive baptist minister you need to have uh a lot of books in your library so people think you're legit but i don't use any of the print anymore i just do everything on my phone i do everything you know on the internet uh but I have I have a lot of books uh, that I have, have on my shelves, but we have so much access to the Word of God and to resources today. So many children of God, understand, did not have the written Word of... That's a very new thing, okay, in the history of God's people, for them to have the written truth of God's Word and... You're not any more worthy of God blessing you with the canon of truth than that child of God who struggled without the Word of God. So I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies of all the truth that you have showed unto your servant. Then he continues to devise plans, not just to divide the two companies, but we're going to send different waves, different troves of of people that I'm going to send this gift and this gift and this gift. And then after I've given him th- that many gifts, hopefully uh, he will be tendered by the time that we show up. So he goes over the brook, verse 23 with his wives and with his close family. And then he was left alone that night, Genesis chapter 32 and verse 24. And Jacob was left alone And there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And as he passed over Peniel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his thigh. Therefore the children of Israel, eat not the sinew which shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh, to this day... Because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh in the sinew that shrank. <clears throat> now I'd like to go to ho- <clears throat> excuse me, I'd like to go to Hosea chapter 12 that gives a little bit more information on this account of the interaction between Jacob and this man who here in Hosea is introduced as an angel. Hosea chapter 12 we'll start reading in verse 2. The Lord hath also a controversy with Judah, and I will punish Jacob according to his ways. According to his doings will he recompense him. He took his brother by the heel in the womb, and by his strength he had power with God. Yea, he had power over the angel, and prevailed. He wept and made supplication unto him. He found him in Bethel and there he spake with us so here this man who Jacob struggled with all night to the breaking of day is described as being an angel it also says that he wept and he made supplication unto him but at the end of this Jacob says that he felt like he had seen God face to face okay so who was this man that he struggled with. I think there's a good chance, especially since that he felt that he had seen God face to face, that this was a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Particularly since it does introduce him in Hosea chapter 12 and verse 4 as an angel, but it says that he wept and made supplication unto him. And if you look at the way that angels interact with people, angels always deflect worship and glory to the Lord so I I don't think an angel would have received supplication if he made supplication the angel would have clearly said no you don't pray unto me you pray unto God okay and the spirit uh, revealed to Jacob that he had seen God face to face so whether it be an angel or whether it be a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God Regardless, this angel or Jesus Christ had much more power over Jacob than he physically had as a person, right? Uh, why um, Why is it that he was allowed to wrestle and struggle with this man all night long? I mean, we see the power that angels have Most of the time when angels show up, people are so overwhelmed, the general disposition is that they fall on their face, okay? Uh, So this is a person, a man, that clearly had power to overcome Jacob struggling with him at any moment, right? And in the midst of this struggle, it's very evident that Jacob was very burdened because he was afraid that not just... Himself, but that his entire family was going to be killed the next day. Okay, he, he was—he was afraid. Cause he knew, at least, the man that Esau used to be and the links to which that he would never let a grudge go. And I have full confidence in him that if he's given the opportunity, he will kill me. And maybe if he kills me, if I'm kind enough to him, maybe he'll at least spare my family. I think that was some of his, his reasoning there. You know, He may kill me, but he doesn't really have a beef against the rest of my family. Maybe if I can just send him all these gifts, I may die, but at least the rest of my family will be saved. But you can see how, how burdened Jacob was as he felt like both possibly himself and the rest of his family could be killed the next day. It says that he wept. He wept and made supplication. So as he was wrestling with God, understand... He was wrestling with God in prayer. Now, this is a physical event that happened, and I believe that he wrestled a physical man there. But he was wrestling with God in prayer in a lot of tears, in a lot of tears, making supplication unto God. I want to go back to Genesis chapter 32. And I believe the wording here is very interesting. You know, I guess I've always viewed this in the past As Jacob, he's, he's a very prideful man, and he's very selfish, and he is a deceiver and a supplanter, and and he's saying, "I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me." So I want something from you, this man who you he, he he had the ability to give it to him. I want something from you, and I'm going to struggle and wrestle with you until I get what I want. But the way this is introduced here <clears throat> in Genesis chapter 32 and in verse 24, Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of day. That doesn't say that Jacob initiated this struggle. It doesn't say that Jacob wrestled with him. It says there was a man that wrestled with Jacob, okay? It almost appears that the Lord initiated this struggle. Verse 25, And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh. You may get confused in some of the, he, the he's and the hims, you know. But it, what it's saying there is that this man saw that he was not going to prevail in this wrestling match over Jacob. Now, whether it be an angel or, or God, clearly he had the ability to strike him down at any moment, Right? he had the ability if he saw fit to touch his hip and get it out of out of joint he could have done that at the beginning he could have just struck him dead right i mean he had total control over the situation but yet it appears that the lord initiated this struggle for the benefit of testing jacob so he could learn very important lessons about The faithfulness of God, the deliverance of God, the mercy and the forgiveness of God. But also, he had the possibility of losing his physical life the next day. And he was so overwhelmed and burdened with that that he was weeping in prayer. And the Lord allowed him to struggle and wrestle with him so that he could be strengthened for the day that was coming tomorrow. Okay? When he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh. You know, it's very interesting. Uh, you think about wrestling. and It says they wrestled here all night. Um, if you have a wrestling competition, a best case scenario, that's going to go uh, six or seven minutes. I think there's three rounds of a wrestling match. I had to get on Google to look that up. Uh, so, this, if you're going to wrestle with so—that it takes a lot of physical exertion to grapple and to wrestle with somebody, right? That's why they only do it for six or seven minutes. But he's saying spiritually, spiritually, he wrestled with him all night. Th- that takes a lot of exertion, especially when you're crying the whole time. That takes a lot of struggle and exertion and agony and as we think about wrestling with the lord supplicating the lord have you ever wrestled and struggled with the lord particularly in prayer all night in prayer in in weeping um there's an intensity there's an intensity that we should have in prayer in general but i tell you there are times in our life where you have circumstances that come. And Jacob was right on the verge of maybe losing his life the next day, right? There are, there are things that, that come in life where you, your, your prayers are a lot more intense and in agony than they are just when everything is going, going smoothly. And we see that consistently in Scripture. I, I think about Colossians chapter forward in verse 12 where epaphras is described as laboring fervently in prayers for you and that laboring fervently literally means being in agony in agony and he's not necessarily just being in agony in prayer so he can receive something he's in agony in prayer for you for the church at Colossae there and that's the kind of intensity that we should have in prayer jesus set that pattern <clears throat> Jesus set that pattern in prayer. In Luke chapter 6, the night before he appointed the 12 apostles, he spent all night in prayer. I mean, Jesus was God, right? Fully God, manifest in the flesh. But yet, he set a pattern for us to go apart by himself and to pray. Something as important as choosing out these 12 apostles— He set a pattern for us to separate himself from the world and separate himself from all of the the busyness of his public ministry, the beginning of his public ministry, to beseech the Lord in prayer for wisdom and guidance and direction as the Son of Man. Obviously, he's God, and he knew they were going to be the 12 apostles uh, from the beginning of time in his omniscience. But... He sets a pattern for us that even though he knew what he was going to do, he went and prayed all night long before he, twel- uh, before he chose those 12 apostles. And how many times have you spent all night in prayer? Not very many for me. Not very many. And when I say all night, I mean, I may be able to, <laughs> I may be able to hold. Uh, Jesus went uh, into the Garden of Gethsemane. That was another place he was in agony. Uh, he, he he was so overwhelmed with what was going to happen the next day uh, with crucifixion as the Son of Man that he being in agony, sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. It says that Jesus was in agony in prayer. Well, actually, I think we're usually probably more like the apostles. They're like, oh, yeah, absolutely. We'll go with you, you know, to the end of the world. Uh, we, we'll die for you. All right, I want you to uh, pray with me for one hour. And they probably lasted about... I'll give them 30 minutes, you know, I'll give them 40 minutes. But by the time he showed back up in an hour, they were asleep, right? So, I mean, I think I can be pretty intensive in prayer, maybe for about 30 or 40 minutes, but we're just like the apostles and get past an hour. We're usually falling asleep, right? Especially if you're going to spend all night in prayer. I mean, you may get a good 30 minutes in, but after that, you know, we're going to get tired. We're going to fall asleep, right? That's the way we pray. But Jesus went and he was in agony, in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you can see that him as the Son of Man there. I mean, he was fully one with God and his will was perfectly one with God. But he was wrestling with God there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, "Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. And their will was one. But yet he is setting an example for the way in which sometimes we we struggle and we wrestle with God. Now, I want to certainly give the caveat here that this is not, we have to approach prayer and approach this kind of disposition with the right attitude, that I'm not trying to impose my will on God. I'm not, I'm not usurping his authority and his sovereignty to say, I'm gonna do my will instead of his will. No, we still pray, and that's not my will, but thine be done. We submit to God's will. But there are lessons that you learn when you struggle with God that you can't learn if everything is just smooth sailing in your life, right? I mean, the, the most uh, the most impactful moments that you have with God are some of these type of moments where you're weeping and you're praying and you're saying, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to be delivered from this situation. And then well, you know what happens the next day? You want to see, let, let's fast forward here. In uh, uh, Genesis 33, and, and Esau receives him with, with meekness and forgiveness and mercy and grace. And then Jacob says in Genesis 33 and verse 10: Jacob said, Nay, I pray thee, if now I have found grace in thy sight, then receive my present at thy hand. Now, remember what he said the day before, okay? He, he, he struggles with God. I have this special moment with God in prayer. And I I am ready for the next day because of the the lesson that he taught me in in allowing me to struggle, allowing me to wrestle against him. And after that, he said, I'm going to name this place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face. This is a moment where I had intimate communion and fellowship with God in a struggle and in wrestling with him. And then the next day, the next day, in 33 and 10, Jacob said, For therefore I have seen thy face as though I had seen the face of God, and thou wast pleased with me. He saw the attributes of God in the actions of Esau in a very powerful and manifest way, right? In the most In the most uh, unsurprising place would you expect Esau who is a non-elect unregenerate man who was uh, a very hateful man that was that had previously threatened to take the life of Jacob and to his knowledge he had not really changed any in these last 20 years to see such a hard man exhibit unmerited favor, to see such a hard man exhibit mercy and forgiveness when Jacob knew, and this is what, what under, underlies this whole situation, Jacob knew now as a regenerated man that he was in the wrong, right? He deserved what came. He, just, he knew that he had, had offended Esau. He deserved what was coming. He he understood that, that I have wronged him. And unless the Lord tenders this man's heart, then he will probably act like any other man would act, and he will take out his vengeance on me. But the Lord tenders the heart of Esau to where even the most surprising vessel exhibits the attributes of mercy and grace and forgiveness and he said wow i have seen god today (laughs) i have seen god today because i have entered a situation where i should have received judgment i should have received condemnation i should have received possibly even physical death and what did i receive instead mercy and grace and forgiveness And I have seen God manifested today in the actions of daily life through the forgiveness of Esau. How about that, right? I have seen God face to face. So why does the Lord sometimes suffer things to come in our life to allow us to struggle? Okay, think about a wrestling match. I've tried to have this thought, and maybe I can explain it correctly, that uh, obviously God and this angel had total control over this wrestling match, right? They had the ability to strike them down at any moment. They had more power. They had more authority. But why did the Lord allow this wrestling match? To continue in the way that he did you know sometimes a dad will especially with a son will have maybe it's more of a playful wrestling match but you know what you are in control of that wrestling match the whole time and at any time at any time you can pin that little kid right I mean you're, you're letting him struggle a little bit you're letting him think uh, that he has the ability to win, but you're, you're giving him the opportunity to learn how to struggle. You're giving him the opportunity to learn how to be challenged and then to not quit when you feel like that you're right on the verge of quitting. And then ultimately you let your kid win, right? <laughs> it says, I mean, think about it. It says that he prevailed against this. Angel. Does he have the ability to prevail against Christ or against this angel? Well, no, of course not. Right. I mean, it does show the intensity of the struggle that Jacob had, though, right? For him to struggle all night and for him to be a worthy opponent. But it's very evident that when he said, you prevailed against me, it was not that he truly won the wrestling match. No, the dad let him win, right? But he allowed him to go through that process because he needed to learn How to deal with that struggle. He needed to learn how to deal with being at the point where I feel like I'm going to give up, but I'm going to keep pushing through anyway. And that was preparing him, not just for the next day, but preparing him for things that would come later on in his life. So why did the Lord initiate that? I think the Lord brought this this wrestling match in the life of Jacob To teach him a lesson, to teach him a lesson of the Lord's deliverance. You know, what time I'm afraid, says in the Psalms, and Jacob was afraid, right? What time I'm afraid, I will trust in thee. There's a big difference between reading that verse and saying, oh yeah, that's right. I know I'm afraid. Um, I know I need to trust the Lord. And then the Lord allowing you to go through an experience in your life. Where now I have a firsthand testimony and exposition of this verse in my life in action, right? When you've seen the action, the attributes of God that are displayed in Scripture, you have now seen them displayed in real life. That's that's what happened with Esau, right? I mean, he knew that God was a God of mercy and grace and forgiveness. But then, to have those attributes of God displayed in the vessel of Esau. <laughs> wow, what an amazing lesson for Jacob to learn. And that lesson was a lot more impactful because it was on the heels of him struggling all night. Okay? I want highlight, to highlight a few people. We'll come back to Jacob's hip, hopefully a little bit later on. But I want to highlight a few people in the New Testament that had some of the same struggle. And obviously, the principal example of this would be the Apostle Paul, right? Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And here the Apostle Paul is addressing his thorn in the flesh. His thorn in the flesh. And the the Lord inspired this text of Scripture in such a way for him to describe it as being a thorn in the flesh and not necessarily to focus on what the particular struggle was. Uh, Paul had bad eyesight. Um, there are other things that could possibly be his thorn in the flesh, and my, my thoughts have always been that if I was Satan, this is described as being the messenger of Satan, uh, if I was Satan, what I would use to buffet the Apostle Paul are all those past sins That he had persecuted the church and he had compelled them to blaspheme and he had uh, held the coats of those that stoned Stephen. If I was Satan, I sure would use that against the Apostle Paul. And I tend to think that 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 may possibly be this thorn in the flesh. But even if that was, the Holy Spirit inspired this in such a way to where we can all identify with a thorn in the flesh, right? We can't all identify with persecuting the church, but we can all identify with having something that's not fatal, right? A thorn is not fatal, but it's very painful. It's very painful. A thorn in the flesh that the Lord suffered to remain in his life for a purpose, for a purpose. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and he says here at the beginning of this chapter, that uh, I, now he, he's speaking in a very humble sense of whether in, in, in the body or out of the body. I can't tell. I knew a man. Well, he's talking about himself. But he's describing himself in very humble terms. And he's saying that I was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it was not lawful for man to utter. You know, there were a lot of people, especially here in these uh, Corinthian letters, that were challenging the apostleship of Paul. And he is having to to defend himself against people that were questioning his apostleship. I think what's so impressive about this from the way that he writes this is I don't think that he had ever told another person about this in his entire life. He'd never told anyone about what happened. The Holy Spirit moved him to tell about it because of the challenges to his apostleship. But if I, or you as well, in our, the way we are, in our prideful sense, if I had been caught up to heaven and heard unspo- unspeakable words that it was not lawful for man to utter, anytime anyone ever questioned uh, my opinion, that would always be my trump card, right? I would always bring that up. <laughs> yeah, oh, you think that your opinion matters? Let, let, did you, have you ever been elevated up to heaven? I have, right? So, therefore, what I say goes. That's how we would act, right? But he had not told a single person about this until the Holy Spirit inspired this right here. And he said, understandably so, that I could very easily become very prideful and be elevated above my proper station because the Lord had given me this great opportunity, this amazing blessing. To be caught up into the third heaven. And I and if if it was up to me, I'd probably use that against everybody in the church, especially these people that are questioning my apostleship. But why did the Lord suffer this thorn in the flesh to remain? Second Corinthians chapter 12 and in verse 7. Lest I should be exalted above measure. Lest I should be exalted above measure. Through the abundance of revelation? I mean, it'd be very easy for me to exalt myself above measure if I'd experienced something like that, right? But why did he not try to elevate himself? Because the Lord had suffered something in his life to keep him humble, to keep him with the right disposition. Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelation, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. And our thorn in the flesh is most likely much different than the Apostle Paul's thorn in the flesh, right? But I think we can all identify with there are things in our life that the Lord has suffered to be there and suffered to remain. Remember, he asked the Lord three times to take it away, and he said, I'm not going to take it away for a purpose so you are not exalted above measure because because just like with Jacob's limp there's going to come a time where you probably are going to feel a little self-sufficient there there's going to come a time where you probably think that you are the greatest of the apostles well actually with the lord and he was the greatest of the apostles but the spirit of god gave him the opinion of himself that I'm not just the least of all the apostles, I'm less than the least of all saints. You see? Why did he have that? He was the greatest apostle. (laughs) But why, in his mind, was he less than the least of all saints? One of the reasons why was because there was this thorn in the flesh that made sure he was never exalted above measure. Okay? And, And that thorn hurt, didn't it? I mean, any thorn hurts. But the Lord... Did not take that away so that he would be reminded of his dependency upon the Lord. Okay? Even the Apostle Paul, who appeared to have everything together in his own mind, in his own conscience, he always dealt with that thorn in the flesh, and the Lord suffered it to remain to keep him humble, lest I should be exalted above measure. He asked the Lord three times for this thing, I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. Now, why did the Lord... Now, understand, this is the messenger of Satan that was the thorn in the flesh. Where did this thorn in the flesh come from? God didn't create it. Satan created it. Well, God could get rid of it at any moment, right? But he suffered it to remain to teach Paul this lesson. This lesson. Paul writes a little bit earlier on in Corinthians. We are not sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. What's one of the reasons that he was was able to learn that properly? Because of this thorn in the flesh where the, the testimony of God to him as he felt the pain of this thorn, and any of us want to have pain removed if we can help it, right? Clearly, it's never the Lord's will for us to be uncomfortable in any way. So clearly, if there's something that's giving me a little bit of pain, all I have to do is ask the Lord and he's going to take it away because he never wants me to be uncomfortable in any way. Actually, he said, this thorn is going to make you uncomfortable for a purpose in a good way. (laughs) So every time you feel the pain of that thorn, every time that you feel like, oh man, this pain, it's never going to go away. It, It hurts, it hurts, it hurts. This is the phrase that you need to be reminded of. My grace is sufficient for thee. My grace is sufficient for thee. And when you feel that weakness, when you feel that thorn, when you have to walk around with that limp for the rest of your life, when you feel that weakness, remember that my strength is made perfect in weakness. You know, that's who the Lord uses, right? He uses broken vessels. He uses people with limps. And actually, there's a phrase, it's been different variations of it that I've seen over the years, but a phrase that's pretty common in Christian circles. Don't ever trust a man without a limp. Don't ever trust a man without a limp. Don't if there is not something in your life where you have struggled with a challenge, and you have some probably remaining remnants of that struggle. You know, Mm -hmm. rarely is the Lord just going to totally remove that struggle. It's the people that have a constant reminder of their inability in and of themselves are the people that have the right disposition in the midst of their weakness for the strength and the power of God to be manifested in the midst of their weakness, okay? Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong you see i mean jacob understood that tomorrow if esau shows up with these 400 men against my wives and kids it's going to be a slaughter if he wants to kill me if he, if he if he desires to wipe my family out it's going to be pretty simple i mean he's going he's going to kill us okay but I think that the Lord was teaching Jacob a very similar lesson to what he was teaching Paul in the New Testament that that's a good place for you to be for you to feel your total insufficiency your weakness because that is the situation where God's power and strength can be abundantly manifested when you have the right disposition to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and that's who He sees fit to exalt. So the Lord allowed Jacob to struggle with him, and then He touched his hip. And you, did you see the uh, the tenacity of Jacob? Because even after he had his his hip dislocated, he didn't stop. He kept he kept wrestling. Okay, he kept struggling even after the Lord touched his hip. But for the rest of his life, Jacob <clears throat> walked around with a limp. You know, and and you know. Don't you know that there were so many times in the years to come that he and he dealt with a lot of struggles and tragedy. Uh, certainly, the the situation with Joseph, where he was deceived and thought his son died, um, that was a great trying period in in his life in the future. But Every step he took, every step that Jacob took where he limped was a reminder of God's deliverance and grace in his life. Every step he took. And you know what? I doubt by the end of his life that he was disappointed that he had that limp for ever how many years. Because if received properly... That limp should have been a reminder every single day of, you know what? There's a good chance I should be dead today. <laughs> I shouldn't even be alive. I shouldn't even be around here in a natural sense. If the Lord hadn't intervened, God's angels encamp round about them that fear him. God, God touched the heart of unregenerate Esau to have him tender to not kill him. I should have been dead today. I should have been in heaven with the Lord. I should have been gone. But the only reason I'm here... Is because of what God did for me, and his limp was a reminder of that with every single step that he took, okay? And that's why the Lord uses broken vessels. <laughs> he uses people with problems. He uses fishermen with bad tempers, right? He uses people with limp. He uses, that's, that's his only option, right? <laughs> I mean, his only option is to use broken vessels like us. But those are the things that keep you humble, that keep you with the right disposition. Lest I should ever be exalted above measure. The Lord is, is gracious to suffer that thorn in the flesh to keep us with the right disposition where we can be humble and hopefully be, be profitable in the Lord's kingdom. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia pbc.org.